Transform the way you hunt with the all-new Bay Cellular Trail Camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the all-new Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge has it all. Coming in at only 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast, which is brought to you by Tacticam. This is your home for all things outdoors in the Badger State, and I'm your host, Josh Raley, thank you so much for tuning in with us again this week. Got a great episode for you. Have my buddy Sam Billhorn from Whitetail Partners on again, and we get into a Whitetail property checklist for February. Seasons are wrapped up, and whether you own land or lease land or have permission on land, or even if you're a public land hunter, you're surely already looking forward to next deer season and thinking about what you can change, what you can improve, what you can do to make your next hunting season better than this one, even if you had a fantastic hunting season last fall. So Sam and I talk through his checklist. We run some diagnostic questions, some common things that I hear from people who say, hey, I had this problem on my uh, hunting property this year. What's the solution to it? Or why am I experiencing that? And so we walk through some of that. And then we also talk a little bit about hacks, cheap tools, easy things that you can do to improve the hunting on your land. So I'm going to keep this introduction nice and short today. I don't know if you can tell from my voice, but I am really, really sick. Uh, Not feeling great, but got to get this episode out. So just want to say a quick thanks to our partners. First of all, Tacticam. They are the title sponsor of this show, and I am currently getting all geared up for turkey season. I've got a uh, turkey hunt down in Georgia, March 25th and 26th. Excited to take my kids out for that. And uh, then my tag in Wisconsin is good for... Uh, the first week that is season A, I believe it's like April 19th through the 25th or something along those lines. But you better believe I'm going to have all of my Tacticam gear ready to go for these turkey hunts. One, so that I don't miss my kids' first potential harvest on camera. Uh, and then two, so that I have my own memories that I can bring home and, and share for my potentially hopeful harvest there in Wisconsin. Their new 6.0 camera is phenomenal. Gives you 4K, 60 frame per second footage. The image stabilization has gone way up from previous models, and it was really good on the 5.0 and the 5.0 wide. Again, you got the weatherproof housing. You've got the one-touch operation. With the 6.0, though, you've also got an LCD touchscreen, which is a huge upgrade. And, of course, just like you've already come to expect from the other Tacticam cameras, they've got a full line of mounts and a 
adapters to get your camera exactly where you need it. So go check it out. Or if you're looking for something a little more budget friendly, you can check out their Solo Extreme, which is another wonderful camera. It gives you HD footage, one-touch operation, waterproof housing, all the good stuff, just at a little bit of a lower price point. So go check them out, Tacticam.com. Next up, Huntworth. Guys, right now, Huntworth is running a sale. Everything on their site is 20 to 50% off. Some of the gear that I was wearing this year, some of my favorites right now are 40% off. I think that's what the uh, the Elkins were the other day, the Elkins pant and jacket. Really love that stuff for mid-season. But there are a ton of good deals on their website right now. If you're looking for some late-season clothing, you know, now's the time to buy it. Now that seasons are just wrapping up, you can, like I said, get a lot of that gear 20 to 50% off. I was looking at some of the heat boost stuff, and it looked like a lot of that was in that 30% off range, which... Guys, their stuff is already not going to break the bank. And so when you add 30% off on top of that, that is fantastic. So go check out their website, huntworthgear.com. And then finally, Onyx Maps. If you're not using Onyx already, you really, really need to give it a try. As Sam and I are talking in this conversation today, one of the things that comes up actually in the conversation is having some kind of app on your phone where you can use that to track yourself when you're on your property, mark locations of potential improvements on your property, and just have for its general usefulness when it comes to scouting your property. Onyx, to me, stands out as the best mapping app for hunters, bar none. You can try it free for seven days. Just go to the app store of your choice and look up Onyx, or you can go to their website, onyxmaps.com. Now, let's jump right into the conversation, talking about the February checklist with Sam Billhorn from Whitetail Partners. Back on the podcast with me is Mr. Sam Billhorn from Whitetail Partners. Sam, what's going on in your world? Uh, it's cold. It's February. It's, uh, you know, busy with plans and designs and all the stuff that we do with Whitetail Partners, but uh, eager to get onto my property here when things, uh, you know, warm up a little bit and excited for this time of year. It's kind of the the for the us in the habitat world it's a very very busy time and a fun time yeah so when when it comes to you know making time for your own property how are you squeezing that in because you got to make hay while the sun shines for for your clients as well so how do you balance the two uh i don't (laughs) you know it's funny it's like uh it's like the accountant that doesn't have his checkbook balanced right so yeah it's, uh, you know, I struggle to get some projects done. In fact, you know, I, what I'm doing and, and had this in my posts a little bit late, lately too, is, um, I'm hiring some help and, and I think that it's okay to say, Hey, I know what I want to do. That isn't the problem. And, uh, hiring some trusted people to come help me get a few things done this year is, is my plan. And I think that'll, uh, really get done some things that I've been wanting to do for a couple of years now and just haven't had the time for it. Yeah, let's dive into that piece just a little bit. That's something maybe we haven't mm-hmm. covered very much in our previous conversations when it comes to hiring some of this work out. You know, um, you might go online and look at what's a hinge cut and how to cut it in a bedding area, watch it on YouTube. It's like, oh, okay, just grab a chainsaw and cut some stuff down. Um, but you can really quickly make a mess of your property. And so can other people. If they're not, if you hire some contractors who have chainsaws, they may not really understand the intricacies of cutting in a good bedding area or cutting in a good travel corridor. What are you looking Mm -hmm. for when you hire out some of this work and how are you ensuring that they understand the plan? Because maybe they're not on uh, that planning side of things. Sure. Well, you know, at, at first I would say they, there's, there's a couple different levels of people. So you, the, the contractor, the guy who can 
use a chainsaw, those sort of things. You know, you can hire some help if you're watching very closely and you know what you're doing and you can, you can educate people to work, you know, that work with you pretty quickly. You know, uh, for example, uh, you could take just, you could take anybody and have them come help you and be extra muscles in the woods and all that. And, and that's great. You know, you can hire, uh, you know, the neighbor kid or whomever just to get some help. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that can be okay. Um, but you got to watch them close. And, and I would never just turn over a plan to somebody that I don't haven't worked with before and don't know what my expectations are. And I think that's where more of the, you know, the habitat professional is someone you want to look for. Somebody who's in land management, understands uh, the concepts of the plan, speaks the same language. And, you know, really in the clients that we have and work with closely is there's only a few people uh, we'll work with, um, you know, either through through Whitetail Partners or refer them to uh, and, and have them do that service because that's that isn't something we self-perform. You know, we're more strictly in the planning and and uh, helping uh, advise people on properties, but getting the right person in there, right equipment, all that stuff, uh, you know, it's important to, to understand, the, like you say, the difference between uh, – different types of cuts and what the objectives are and trafficking deer and all these things. Yeah. I was, I was watching a video the other day and I, I just love to consume YouTube content, especially as I'm doing dishes or something. It's easy to pop in the earbuds and, mm-hmm. or the AirPods and watch away. And I'm, I'm listening to this person say, you know, here's how we cut all of our hinge cuts. We want them to be knee to hip high somewhere in there. We want them low. And then I look up at the video and all of his hinge cuts are like neck high. And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. dude, you're this. This is not. I think you got. I think you're mistaken here as to what you're showing everybody. But, but that's an, one of those easy examples where, if you just very quickly describe to someone who's unfamiliar, hey, hinge cut this, they may have something totally different in mind. And if you get neck high, chest high hinge cuts, they're not going to be nearly as beneficial for directing traffic or providing quality uh, bedding. Yeah. So on that, there, you know, there is a height of cut for a variety of different things. I'm not going to be guy, a guy that says, you know, that specification height is uh, 36 inches and you shall not vary uh, plus forgot, or minus two inches. You forgot I the mean, quarter inch. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 it's, it's, uh, it's not that simple. I mean, you have a lot of different uh, approaches depending on what you're cutting. Yeah. Like you say, a corridor versus a bedding area, for example, very different objectives. Um, so, and that's the importance of understanding this and what you're looking to do. If you're headed out there to do yourself, uh, do it yourself. A great way to do it is to, uh, hire somebody for a day to come help and teach you. You know, that is something that I do a fair amount of in working with landowners to help them learn, you know, teach how to do that. That's one of my favorite things to do is go out there and, uh, show how to do a few things and enable them to go out there and have more confidence in doing it. Yeah, so speaking of beginning of, to do some of the work, it is February. You just posted your February checklist on uh, Instagram the other day. I love these. Love that you do them. Now, you know, depending on where you're at, that checklist, you may have to bump yeah. it back. You may bump it forward. We actually had a conversation. You're still, hunt, you're still hunting the rut down there, Josh. Basically, yeah. yeah. So I had to cancel yeah. my rut trip, which is really sad. So we've got a yeah. – we traditionally okay. hunt the, the first week or, you know, February 3rd through the 10th. We try to hunt Alabama because that's our, um, that is basically November 3rd through 10th in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Like that's the equivalent. And so uh, I actually had to cancel that. We've got some uh, friends coming in to visit, which is good. Uh, they're actually coming down from Wisconsin for a little bit of respite 
from the uh, mm-hmm. from the the cold weather. They're going to come hang out with us in Georgia. But um, anyway, so looking into the checklist, I love that you do these though. Right. Whatever you know, if you're calling in from or if you're listening in from the south, maybe some of this stuff you bump it back just a little bit. But let's run through that checklist and talk about some of the things that you have on there as far as. Uh, mm-hmm. what people should be doing this time of year. Where would you start? Like, what would you say is the highest priority? Sure. So I always like to throw a little bit of variety on there. I mean, these checklists, you could have almost, you know, 30 items, one per day. Uh, our, our internal list, so to speak, the things that we talk about is, is more extensive, and we just try to give a flavor of that. So on the front end of it, I always put something hunting or scouting related. And and for me and myself, I, I'm still running cameras. I run cameras pretty much all year now. I probably bring them in for a month around March when things are, uh, you know, most of the antlers are dropped and um, activities uh, changing up with the spring and all that. Good time to get them cleaned up, maintenance, all that. But um, I run them. I just enjoy it. Uh, like seeing how deer use different areas and different parts of the year. And I think one of the, you know, because there's really uh, – nothing wrong with putting a camera in an odd area. I, I put them all over the place, just trying to catch something new and see, oh, a buck might be in this spot or that spot. And yeah, it may not relate to hunting season, but it's just a fun thing to learn and enjoy. So scouting on that end, um, I, you know, a lot of people like the chatter of uh, shed hunting this time of year. Um, that is, it's coming. And certainly people, there, there are sheds out there to be found. It's happening, but um, generally I'm holding off until, March on my property. There's no real reason to be out there uh, forcing it at this time. Plus, I I don't want to bump a deer in, if I don't need to be doing some work out there. But I'm, I'm curious into the habitat. How, oh, go ahead. How much of an emphasis do you put on um, on shed hunting? I mean, I know for some guys that's like their thing. It's like they can't wait for deer season to end so they they can hurry up and shed hunt. Yeah. For me, I'm more of I'd rather be scout. I'm pretty much always scouting, right? I get distracted by yeah. deer sign, and if I stumble across a shed, great. You know, but but it seems like I don't know. Shed hunting continues to fall further and further down my priority list. What about you? Yeah, it's on the bottom. Okay. I just don't care about it. I mean, it, it. I enjoy going out there. It's neat to see it, but I'm I'm not making any shed hunting trips. I mean, it's it's fun to find a big shed and all that. It seems like most of my sheds, I find I trip over them because I'm looking for something else <laughs> and you know, there it is. Oh yeah. I just, I just stepped on it type of thing. I wasn't looking for it in the first place. Cause I, like you say, I'm scouting, you know? Yeah. So I, I like finding them. It's always fun throw them in the four wheeler box and away we go. But, uh, for me, I'm usually out there looking at the habitat, not so much the shed. Plus, you know, it's interesting to find a big shed, uh, or any shed, but it, it isn't something I'm going to key on for hunting season. I think the timing and everything is just completely unrelated. Yeah. And, for me, you know, you, you've heard the difference between fishing and catching. You know, some guys don't really like fishing. All they want to do go do is catch. That's me when it comes to shed hunting. Yeah. I like shed finding. I don't yeah. like shed hunting. Like the thought of just walking around only looking for sheds, kind of like, nah, I don't really have yeah. time for that. Any, any shed hunting for me turns into a scouting trip. So. That's right. Very good. Very good. So the next thing on your list there is layout. And uh, for those who have a plan... Uh, I, mm-hmm. I don't think I can emphasize the importance of layout too much. Uh, I'm working on a property right now with a client in Georgia. And one of the things that we are looking at as, in implementing this plan is the topography. It's extremely steep. He's got 60, 70, 82% slope in some areas. Mm-hmm. So you're talking rappelling down the side of his 
ridgelines, right? So when you come back yeah. and you put a plan together, if you don't lay that plan out with proper flagging and take all of that into consideration when you're out there and you're just going to be rigid with the plan that you've been handed, you could really run into some trouble. Yeah, so the, the plan we provide is is a good guide to um, you know how to set up the system for the property, but getting the actual layout done. And when we say layout, I'm talking, uh, I have, I don't know what it is, a dozen different color ribbons. I'm talking like surveyor tape uh, ribbon uh, that I have in my tool belt going out there. And every single color relates to that on the plan. So we're going out there and finding the details now. Now we're actually looking for the tree. Like we know, we know based on the plan, we should be hunting here. Now we need to find that actual pinch point that identify the tree we're going to put the tree stand in, you know, the exact spot in the ground we're going to put a mock scrape and a water hole. You know, I'll drive a, a put a flag or a lath in the spot. You know, we want to define things uh, that precisely. And then corridors and things like that. Um, you know, on, on a corridor, for example, I'm going to locate that. Some of these are following existing corridors. A lot of them are, for the most part, we're, we're trying to emphasize the major movement. Um, but then also at other times we're creating it where we're connecting a spot from A to B that we want deer to go through there, but there was some, you know, some uh, trees that fell or whatever other thing that we need to cut through it. And, and that's all part of it. So I'm putting a, a three or four foot ribbon, you know, the, it, they're quite obtrusive in the woods because you want them to be, especially if your cuttings aren't going to happen then until summer. Um, and putting one every 25 yards and really laying out, making it very visual in the timber, everything as to where it goes, uh, and then providing explanation further. And sometimes there's little tweaks. You know, we're going to put a, uh, uh, you know, a tree stand. We end up moving it 20 yards from where it was on the plan because that's the tree we wanted to use when we got there. So it's about taking the concept of the plan and transferring it to the detail uh, of the timber. Yeah, that's really good. That's really, really good. Um, one thing you alluded to there is, is I think another topic that we haven't really touched on very much, but as we're doing layouts and as we're thinking about implementing a plan, now, again, all of this assumes that you've got a plan, right? It assumes that you're not just busting up into your yeah. timber, just willy well, nilly throwing a plan. Yeah. 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 You're, you're not just throwing random improvements across the landscape. That's um, right. But, but when you do this, when you're, when you're putting in a, a, a pinch point or putting in a travel corridor or setting up your food plot, some of the things or one of the first things you're taking into account is what is the tree that I'm going to be hunting from? Tell me a little bit about why you start there and the importance of starting there as opposed to going in the reverse. I, well, for starters, and I'd like to use the example of a location we're going to put uh, – a mock scrape and perhaps a water hole along a corridor. Uh, all three of those things I can move fairly easily. I can adjust them with cuttings and sometimes even with a little bit of earthwork to, to move things around. Uh, I can adjust those, uh, you know, where I want them to be. What I'm looking at first is, is like you say, the tree. I want to find the tree that we're going to put a stand in that we can easily access um, the right type of tree. Maybe it's a larger tree that has good back cover. It has the right lean for the stand. It has, um, you know, the uh, a nice access point. It's along a drainage so we can come up from the bottom of the drainage and get into that tree without exposing ourselves, uh, silhouetting and things like that too much uh, on the landscape. 
and and then also considering perhaps a backup tree. Anytime I put a, a the effort into a setup that's going to be permanent, I want to make sure that if this tree goes down, I got another option. Uh, it's particularly important in places where you have, uh, I'll just say like a like ash borer, for example. I'm really careful about an ash tree because I don't expect it to be there in 10 years, uh, and and that sort of thing. So the, the tree you can't move as well, you, you can't move, whereas the corridor you can't you can adjust that. So then I look at it and say, all right, if we're trying to hunt this movement, approximately 20 yards, where's the best tree? Well, if that tree ends up being at 30 yards, maybe that corridor gets moved in a little bit, or if it's a little closer, that corridor gets moved out. And the, you know that adjustment then happens with a chainsaw, adjusting where you want the deer travel to be and downing those trees perpendicular to the line of travel. So those, in the example of the tree stand with a corridor, you know, you have your tree stand is outside of that corridor from the, uh, from the hunting, or you're hunting outside of this corridor. You wanna down trees in the direction of that stand, so perpendicular. Uh, sometimes that correlates with a shooting lane, just exactly where you need it. And then also up and down that corridor, having these trees downed uh, perpendicular so it f- continues to funnel that traffic down that corridor yeah yeah that's really good yeah so and if you you really don't want to end up scrambling in the other direction of like hey all right we've got this corridor we put in all of this work now where in the world am I going to hunt it from oh wait there's not a tree within 40 yards not very beneficial Right. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> oh, goodness. So uh, let's jump into bedding now. That's the next on your uh, on your list. But maybe you're not going full bore with the bedding right now. If you're, you know, especially there in Wisconsin, if you're doing some bedding cutting, you're probably going to return to that. So tell me a little bit about the two stages. Yeah. So at this point in time, especially I use like right now as an example in the north where we have bitter cold temperatures, um, I don't want to be hinge cutting. Uh, some people might force that. It's the, you know, they want to get it done, which being careful and, you know, working with the tree, that that can be okay. But um, the trees are brittle when they're cold. They're frozen and they just don't want to bend as easily and you end up with uh, poor quality hinge cuts uh, when you're trying to do that. And I do use hinge cutting as a component of uh, bedding areas. So, it is okay though to, to fell the trees, the larger trees. And, and again, just a reminder on safety is, you know, trees that are much and it depends on species, but much bigger than eight or ten inches, you probably shouldn't try to to uh, hinge cut them. You know, you'll you'll end up with uh, potentially some dangerous situations you want to avoid. So anyway, get those getting those big trees down. So when you're making a bedding area uh, within a timber. You're, you want to open up the canopy. You want to get some of the larger trees down. And if you're uh, doing it safely and comfortable uh, doing these cuts, it's a good time of year to do it because those trees, uh, getting them down and getting the, the sky opened up, then you can come back later. And I'm talking in the spring, once things are starting to warm up and you have warmer temperatures for the trees and do those subsequent hinge cuts and other uh, you know, detail cuts throughout the bedding area that you need to, um, to finish it off. Yeah. And even if you're, uh, working in the spring already, you're going to start with those big trees anyway. Like if you don't have the big trees down when you're in spring, you're going to start there anyway. So you don't end up just basically trashing all the other work that you've tried to do. That's right. And I think in the winter, great time because man, that's a lot of food on the ground. 
Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. In fact, if I have any cuttings that I can get done, I, I like to do that because it, it puts a lot of browse down on the ground and it just gets hammered all winter long then. And um, great thing to do. It also, uh, just a side note on that, I, I plant a lot of conifers on my property. And in doing that, uh, especially like a Norway spruce, for example, they can get some browse pressure in the wintertime. You get a fair amount of snow on the ground and, and they'll start to want to browse on those trees. Well, a good way to save your young conifer plantings is to get uh, annually, get some more trees down on the ground, doing it in strategic areas. And the deer will much prefer that over the, the conifers and it'll help uh, preserve their life longer. Just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by Tacticam makers of the best point-of-view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers. They're on the cutting edge making user-friendly cameras to help the everyday outdoorsman share your hunt with friends and loved ones. Their new 6.0 camera has a ton of upgraded features this year, but the one I'm most excited about is the new LCD touchscreen. In my mind, that is a total game-changer. And one area Tacticam really shines is with their mounts and adapters that are made with the sportsman in mind. If you've tried to film your hunting and fishing excursions, you know just how frustrating it can be to try to get an action camera aimed just right or get it attached to your weapon or in a good spot for a second angle. Well, Tacticam makes all of that a breeze with their line of mounts and adapters. This fall, I'm going to be using their stabilizer mount on my bow with the 6.0 camera and their bendy clamp paired with the 5.0 wide camera for a second angle and to make sure I don't miss any of the action. To learn more and check out their full line of products, head over to their website, Tacticam.com, and share your hunt with Tacticam. So let's now talk about the neighbors. Okay, we are um, in a time of year where the pressure is off, right? Like seasons are over. I'm not as stressed about whether or not the neighbors know about this or that specific buck maybe. Um, mm -hmm. The odds, the stakes are just a little lower. It feels like at this time of mm -hmm. year. You have in your, uh, in your checklist updating signage. I think that that one's pretty obvious, right? Like get out there on the property boundary, update all your signage, keeps everybody honest, lets everybody know, hey, I'm present mm -hmm. on my property. I take trespassing seriously. I'm not going to mess with your land. Here's my property boundary. I appreciate it if you don't mess with mine. It's, an, mm -hmm. it, it's also a great time to, um, in many ways, befriend those neighbors or invest mm -hmm. in those relationships in a way that may gain you an ally in your goals for your property. So talk to me a little bit about um, maybe your strategy for doing that and how do you approach those conversations? Sure. You know, the way I look at it is, uh, um, and you're absolutely right to talk about this time of year, people's guards are down. Everybody's, uh, I don't know, maybe around July, everybody kind of goes uh, in, you know, turns <laughs> inward and, and yeah. becomes through and and cryptic and all these things that uh, become difficult but you know generally things you know people let their guard down one of the things I love to do this time of year is I'll text neighbors pictures and say hey this deer made it through well you know that that might spark something out of them and at least they're you know uh, thankful and uh, curious that you, you do that and then they might start reciprocating. So I guess that's what, if you give a little bit, you might get a little bit back and pretty soon they're more willing to do that into season and, and letting down some of the guards. I had, I had one guy that the first time I met him got an argument over a really silly thing. And I, I just kind of <laughs> put my hands up in the air and walked back slowly and said, Hey, you know, I, 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 
anyway, that's a story for another day. But I think we're going to have to. I think we're going to have to do that one though. That's going to be its own episode. Yeah, I think. yeah. Well, well, that was a special one. But anyway, it was a little adversarial, and I uh, did get the guy's number out of it, and I started texting pictures and just saying, "Hey, I saw this buck the other day. Thought you might be interested." And it and just kind of trickled in, and you know, I wouldn't wasn't hitting them all that often, but you know, every few months, a couple times throughout the season, and then afterward, and and the guy lightened up, and we've actually become you know friends or at least willing to talk to each other and, <laughs> and, and sharing some information and, and it comes to come to find out he's probably one of the more avid bow hunters in the area and he knows what's going on and, and he may not be forthright during the season on all of his information, but the little bit that we can exchange, um, it's, it was good. And at least it makes it productive because, you know, you get in the, you have to work with your neighbors. You, you want those relationships to be productive. If they're not, it, it just, it doesn't make, it's, it's not fun and it can be really difficult. You hear these terrible stories of people not letting somebody retrieve a buck on their land or whatever the case might be. And you just don't want that. Yeah. And I think I, there's such a temptation <clears throat> and even, even with, you know, a lot of landowners that I've, that I've talked with recently to view your neighbors in this very adversarial manner. Like the, it's almost mm-hmm. like the assumption can start that like they li- they're on that side of the boundary. Therefore they're bad. You know, like that's, that's kind mm-hmm. of the, the reasoning behind it. But um, yeah, I, I think as we can start those conversations, all of a sudden they can become a, a very important ally. And maybe we're not going to disclose every buck that we're after, but now you with this, with this gentleman, you're aware that he is an avid bow hunter. He's probably not going to smash all the two-year-olds that step onto his property, right? Like he's, mm-hmm. he probably has a little That's bit right. higher he's standards. Not. You know, you can count on him at least in that regard. He may not tell you about the 180 that's crossing the corner of your property, mm-hmm. but he's going to help you when it comes to managing your herd. And I think that's a, a hugely important that's right. part. Yeah, of, and he's absolutely that way. This, this guy you describe, and we talk about, um, trying to get the age class higher and higher. And I, I feel he's working on the people around him. I'm working on the people around me and, and we're helping each other in that regard. And that's a, that's a mutually beneficial uh, exchange there for sure. Yeah. So another thing you mentioned on your, on your list is uh, equipment maintenance. And I, man, I, I got to tell you, I grew up and this was not like this was the problem every time we would get all of our mm-hmm. gear together. We would drive the two hours up to the camp us and, you know, 15, 20 other guys. Sometimes, I mean, we were managing thousands of acres, like 4,000 acres. So we had mm-hmm. a lot of guys helping out on this property and we get there and a tractor's broken down and an ATV won't work and a sprayer's clogged and a, you know, chainsaws won't start. And we spend the whole half of the first half of a Saturday just trying to get all the gear working. So talk to me about what you're doing this time of year to make sure that you're ready to go. I hate, and I've had all those things. <laughs> I hate them. It's the worst. Tremendously. I, it, it is the worst. You know, you, there's only so many hours in the day and, and we, we pack, you know, try to pack so much into them to not have a piece of equipment work properly is in my mind, unacceptable. You know, I'd rather pay the, I'd rather pay more to, than I need to like in repairs, for example, than, um, have run into a problem. So all my chainsaws, you know, as soon as I'm done cutting wood in the, and I burn firewood in the fall, um, done, done doing that. And it's wintertime. They all go, they all go in. I'm not a mechanic. Don't claim to have uh, any inclination that way. I understand enough to be dangerous, 
but I, I drop them off and just say, go through them. You know, if you see something that's suspect, tear it out, put it back in because it, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to get another three months out of that, you know, pull cord or whatever it is. Yeah. So that's the saws. And then like a sprayer, for example, like just, I, I replace the pump every three years on it, just tear it off, put a new one on there because it might last five, but I don't want to find out. Yep. Yep. So when it comes to, um, you know, some of the more mechanical things, I mean, you've got to have a guy that you trust. Like if you can't do it yourself, you're not comfortable doing it yourself. Maybe you just don't have the time. That would be my, my shoes, right? Like right. I don't have the time to spend a weekend or a weeknight even working on my gear. I need to show up at the place on Saturday and have everything working. So how are you finding the right person to kind of help you keep sure. all your stuff maintained? Yeah. So with that, it's, it's time money, right? So there's some guys that have more time and maybe they can watch some videos and do some maintenance themselves and they're willing to do that kind of work. And that's great if that's you. Um, you know, that it just prioritize it and know what's got to get done. Um, and then there's other guys where they have more money than time and it, and it's okay to take it down to the, uh, tractor dealer that makes too much for their labor or, or whatever the case might be. And, but know that it's been perfectly maintained and, and, you know, it, it you, you paid well, but you also know it's, it's done well. And you have everybody in between, you know, the small shop guy, the, you know, neighbor who's good with engines, whatever that looks like. I mean, there's a varying scale on that. I would say do what you're comfortable with. And, you know, if you have more money than time, then perhaps you're looking more to those dealer situations and uh, going to a trusted source that's going to have it done professionally, but you're, you're going to pay for it as well. Yeah. The, the for, lat- for me and myself, I do a little, I do a little bit of both, you know, like the, the sprayer uh, um, pump, I can, I can take that off and put a new one on and that's easy enough. And, and some, some simple parts I can do the same, but to go through and uh, do oil and all this other stuff for a chainsaw or whatnot, I might just, um, you know, have all the filters replaced and all that. I'll just, I'll just take it in, drop it off. Yep. Yep. So the last thing I want to cover from, from the checklist is, is something that I'm personally really excited about. Uh, It's the learning center on the website. You've got learn on there. And one great yeah. new resource is at whitetailpartners.com, right, where you have got a ton of videos and podcasts like this one that will all be going live where we are recording as a team everything that we're putting out there, all the content that we're putting out there to help you learn how to manage your property. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, anybody who's followed us for any amount of time on social media knows that, you know, we want to put quality information out there. Um, it will, it, it will help people. Uh, we, we want to help as many people as we can. I think that's our goal with what we're doing and putting a lot of free, re, free resources out there. The website was just a, uh, simple, uh, hub for all this information. And we made a page on there called, as you say, called the learning center and yeah, podcasts, video, uh, through a couple of YouTube channels that we have. And then, um, articles, which a lot of our blog posts, we're going to be turning into articles because, you know, I, I'm that guy who constantly runs up against the character limit on the, uh, on the posts. And, <laughs> you know, I, I could have a little bit more long form content on those articles and, and try to do more and more of that. I've recently been doing some more series type posts on social media and trying to tell a story through a aspect of habitat design. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's going to 
follow suit on the website. And, you know, we're just starting out there. I think there's probably maybe, I don't know, 25 pieces of content out there, but those are going to quickly develop. And um, all of our uh, monthly checklists that we have, uh, all that stuff is going to be housed at that location and, and should be a pretty good spot for people to go check out. Yeah. So tell me then, um, so when it comes to your recent posts, guys, if, if you're not already following uh, Whitetail Partners on Instagram, you need to go do that. It, good content all the time. One of my favorite things that you've done, I think, is your most recent series that I think you just wrapped it up kind of, uh, but all about timber, all about manage, managing your timber, which, you know, food plots are great. Um, still, at the end of the day, 70% of a deer's diet, if not more, is going to be woody browse and browse from right. your timber. So tell me a little bit about the, the series of posts, what you were hoping to, to teach people, and maybe some of the key takeaways that if folks haven't checked it out already, you know, they can right. kind of walk away with it today. Yeah, awesome setup. Thanks for that, Josh. And in, in the series, I think we're, I don't know, we've done six or seven posts. We'll probably wrap it up around nine or ten. So we're still telling that story a little bit out there. Um, again, Learning Center on the website's place to go. But uh, we... I wanted to approach, especially this time of year, this is, you know, from when hunting ends until spring green up, that is the time to be working in your timber. Uh, when I say timber, I'm talking all forest types. So hardwood, softwoods, cover, brush, habitat, all this stuff that you may um, have on your property. Uh, that's what we're talking about. And what I wanted to bring up is the concept, you know, there's a lot of terms, for example, that are throw around, thrown around in the in forestry or in the habitat world. Uh, it kind of uh, put our take on some of that as well as just the approach that you have. So looking at your, looking at your forest, and when the series is called Forest Built for Deer, looking at that, we, we said, how do you even start to comprehend what's going on there? There's so many facets of uh, different tree types, um, different uh, species, different, uh, t you know, components to your timber. You get, you know, canopy, uh, understory, all these different uh, aspects that are all important to deer and how to really pick that apart and unravel it. Um, one of the things that can be confusing is the conventional wisdom of forestry and, and wildlife management doesn't take into account the consideration for hunting from a, an organized systematic standpoint, which is really what uh, we with um, Whitetail Partners and, and with Habitat Design are trying to accomplish. So we're taking the concepts that are important for uh, developing good habitat, but also accomplishing them in the context of good hunting. And I think combining those two things is really what this is all about. We don't want to just forego a lot of these you know, absolutely great principles of forestry and habitat and wildlife and all these things, but we want to combine them into a way that helps people um, set up their property to hunt deer. Yeah. I, I really like that from your most recent post. Um, I'm going to butcher the wording. I read it this morning. I, I don't remember it exactly, but it was basically the concept was making sure that we are approaching forestry or, or improving our timber in such a way that benefits our hunting as well. There's a couple of different mindsets and approaches when it comes to managing timber ground. I talked to a landowner recently. He's got 350 beautiful acres in South Georgia. Lots of deer, lots of turkeys. Uh, his hunting is phenomenal already. He wants to take it to the next level. He talked with a forester uh, before, before calling me, and 
immediately the forester is like, let's clear the whole thing. Let's wipe it all. I mean, he just wants to, to get after the, the timber value that is on the property. There's tremendous timber value on the property. Um, mm-hmm. The landowner was, was a little bit uncomfortable. Hey, that's going to have a huge impact on my hunting. I don't even know how I want to have it set up just yet for, for deer hunting. And I, I think the forester became a bit frustrated with him immediately and was just like, you can't worry about that. You need to be worried about your timber value. And that was kind of the, the primary concern from his perspective. So I think that just highlights, mm-hmm. hey, you've got to find somebody whose perspective and goals match yours. If you That's find right. someone whose who's ultimate goal is timber value and you as a landowner, your ultimate goal is good hunting. And if you pay for your work on your property with your timber, wonderful. That's fantastic. Right. But it doesn't help you to create a 350-acre bedding area on your property. That's not going to help your hunting. Right. Yeah. It, it has to be more strategic than that. Um, and, and when you say, I, I, I want to throw an asterisk on Forrester too, to say, what are they trying to accomplish? You know, exactly. if they're trying to fill up truckloads of, uh, with logs, they don't have the interest of, of whitetail habitat in mind. You know, like that, that the two don't, you know, don't correlate. They don't, they, you, they yep. cannot be done together. Yep. And, and I, and I think it's important to, to take that caution. And, and that's what, it, you know, one of the couple of the posts were about defining your goals, defining what you want and all these things that lead you up to being able to make these decisions. Cause if you don't have those things in, you know, in the right context for yourself and what your goals are, um, you're, and you invite someone in, you're going to be influenced in the direction of their goals, not yours. Yep. And I, I think one important thing to remember, um, is and and I, I don't want to speak negatively at all. Like so, so if you're listening, don't don't hear me as saying that this is a negative thing. This is all about perspective and the direction at which we're coming at this. Mm-hmm. But someone told me recently, hey, a forester said he'll come out and and give me a consultation for free. And it's like, well, yeah, he 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 probably will, and he's paid on commission, so he's going to get you to sign a contract that day or very very soon to cut a huge chunk of your property. Because he gets paid when the truckloads of timber leave your property, right? And, yeah, he might mm-hmm. come out there initially for free, but his goals are not the same. So that piece of goals is mm-hmm. just, it's hugely important. So, anyway, an, enough about that. Yeah. That's good stuff. All good yeah, stuff. Good, good things. Yep. Yeah, people should check out your, uh, your other posts on it, though. They've been, they've been phenomenal. I've learned a lot. I, I know that. Um, when it comes to thinking about the habitat season ahead, and the work that I want to accomplish on my property. Um, uh, a friend of mine recently told me, you know, yeah, this is all great. You know, I've got a good plan moving forward. Now I'm land poor, basically. I've got this big chunk of land. I just paid a bunch of money for it. Uh, I need to do what I can do as affordably as possible, right? So when it comes mm-hmm. to tools that you're using, when it comes to, um, you know, tactics that you're going to use and implement, what are some of the biggest hacks that you've found that are going to get you in the field, get you working, get you improving your property without another huge payout to get started? Sure. Well, you know, it is, it is important to say one of the things you can do is not waste money, right? So, you know, it's, it's important to uh, define that and say, if you don't know what you're doing, it is best. And I'm not just trying to plug what we do. 
but it is best to get a plan and understand it because you can do a lot of work, put a lot of effort and money into doing something to, through your experience over time, learn it was wrong. And so don't go backwards. So number one, just don't, don't go in the wrong direction and don't just start doing stuff. Um, but next, once you know what you're doing, many of these things can be done. And, and in terms of, we talked a lot about for, uh, forest uh improvements, uh, timber improvements and all this, a lot of times a harvest may be in line that generates money, yep. you know, that, that, uh, will, you know, take it in the, in the plus category. So then you have some more money to work with and you're, you're not just land poor anymore. You've taken some of that resources. Well, you know, one of the guys I work with, re- I work with recently, he said, I don't have too much money to do these things. And we looked at his timber and I said, there's like, you know, 20 acres here that you, you need to, you know, do a pretty significant harvest on because it's so mature and, and they're good quality oak trees, uh, red oaks. I said, just, just, you know, get 75% of these out of here and, and he will benefit from that and be, then have some of that money. And, but getting to your question, the, the work itself and the things to do, um, you know, we, we talked about it before is, you know, keeping, keeping things running. So don't, don't lose time doing that. Um, but it, you know, you do not need expensive tools. The, the last thing you have to have is that 30, 50, hundred, whatever thousand dollar tractor and implement, you know, spread of implements. Um, me on my uh, property, I, all of my tools, if you added them all together and, and put them all in one spot, I'm pretty sure it'd be less than $10,000. It's not, a lot in the grand scheme of things. Um, in fact, you can do it on far less than that. I think with a used ATV, some sprayers, call the packer, uh, some of these things, which you can make, by the way, my first one I ever had, I made. Um, you can you could do all that for less than $5,000 if you had some ingenuity and, and bought some things used and all that. So anyway, those are all the things you can do as far as um, the hacks and things like that. Um, you know, I, simple things that I would bring up are making sure that you have, um, the tools that, uh, you, you, smaller tools, for example, you know, a very, very basic chainsaw. That is, that is the number one tool that you need to go out there and work on things. You can get by with a medium size saw, uh, to do everything, um, rather than having multiple saws. Um, you know, I have a larger saw for cutting wood, a small saw for doing detail work. And, um, pretty soon I'll have a couple others just for convenience sake, but you know, you could buy a medium size chainsaw and and get it all done. So I think buy smart, um, don't think you need to really, um, stretch your budget too far on that. And generally in the spring, I'll always have a bunch of posts. You can look at my post history and find it as, a lot of information on the right tools to buy and, and how to go about doing that. Because I, I do want to promote guys getting the work done themselves, being economical about it, um, being wise with their money. Uh, that's, that's a passion I have to address people like that. Cause that's where I was, um, a few years ago. This episode is brought to you by the Onyx hunt app. Onyx gives you up to date landowner information, color coded public and private land boundaries, and gives you a ton of tools to help you hunt smarter. One tool I'm loving right now is their optimal wind feature, which lets you set the optimal wind for a given location, then tells you in real time whether the wind is good, bad, or just okay for that spot. You can try it risk-free for seven days right now. Just download the Onyx Hunt app on your preferred app store today. Let's now shift gears just a little bit. I think 
hunting season is still pretty fresh in our minds at this point. Uh, get a few more months down the road, we might start to forget just a little bit, little bit especially when uh, green up starts and we're already looking forward to the next season, have all that hope and optimism kind of swirling around in our minds. But mm-hmm. um, I want to run through a couple of diagnostic kinds of situations where a landowner comes to you and he says, hey, here's, here's my pain point, right? And I'd like you to walk mm-hmm. me through what are a couple of uh, possible issues that are leading to these pain points and a couple of possible solutions. The first one mm-hmm. uh, is a pain point that I grew up with uh, a good bit until we started to understand a little bit better um, about how food plots work, how deer use food plots, and and which ones they're going to use in the daylight. Now, you know, we, we adjusted our hunting strategy significantly. But it's this. We've got great food plots. They came in well. We did our soil test. They're attractive. The plants are healthy. Uh, but I don't have any daytime movement in my plot. Maybe maybe it's a good day to see a couple of does in my food plot in the daylight. What are some potential things that are going on there? Well, the first question I'd ask, and it's really of a lot of things hunting related is what's your access? Um, can you come and go from, if you're hunting on or near that plot, can you come and go from those sets with deer in the plot uh, and not spook them? I, a vast majority of people, the answer is no, they can't. Uh, they, they have set up in the stereotypical, uh, you know, 15 foot tall redneck blind in the middle of the food plot, um, you know, that there, it is impossible to come and go from that deer. Um, you know, that, that's the way a lot of people set up their properties. Um, and so having good access that you have screened your entry and exit uh, is really important. That's always uh, an initial one. Uh, a second one, too, is the edge habitat around a food plot may not be that inviting. It, it's also very, very common to have a food plot that is what was a prior existing uh, egg field, and it uh, it has a hard edge. You know, the, the timber is vertical where it meets the field. And that's not very inviting to the deer. Softening that edge, had a lot of posts on this recently of, um, you know, planting warm season grasses on the edge, cutting some trees, making more of a staggered staged uh, canopy from the field to the inner cover. Uh, you know, that's another really important thing. Um, the size and breakup of the food plot, that's probably, that's another one that I would bring up. It, people have these large, huge rectangular fields and they are, well, they, they only see deer in the daylight or does in the daylight and very few bucks. If, if a buck comes to that plot, he's, he's probably not getting more than three feet into it, eating on the edge and then getting back into the cover. It's, it's too open. So breaking up that plot, you could put plot screen, you could put switchgrass, you could put corn in strips for this plot and bust it up into smaller compartments, uh, make it more intimate for lack of a better word. I like to leave, if we're clearing a plot, I like to leave trees staggered throughout a plot. Um, You got to be careful on shade that you don't over shade that uh, what you're trying to grow. But um, you know, if if you maintain the character of the cover around it, you're going to see a lot more daytime activity. I mean, compare your small kill plot to your large food plot on buck numbers, uh, pictures of bucks you know, you're going to have a lot more in that small kill plot than you are in that big plot. And, you know, area care comparing the area, the big one might be 10 times bigger. Yeah. Let me play devil's advocate just a little bit here. 
Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, I I hear what you're saying when it comes to edge habitat, breaking up the plot, maybe leaving some trees, maybe felling some trees, planting warm season grasses. Sam, I've got limited room in this food plot. I don't want to take up spot and area that could be uh, planted in my food plot blend. I don't want to take up Mm -hmm. that room and leave other stuff. I want it all to be food. Well, I would say, you know, it's an attraction. This area is an attraction, right? Um, I think maybe you said it before. I'll say it again. What three quarters of a deer's diet is in in the cover? They're eating browse, uh, hard mass, all this stuff. And we we want to have very high quality food out in that plot uh, for them to come to. And also, if we have goals of sustaining deer throughout the winter and all this and that you want to you want to have enough of this food source and maybe you accomplish that goal somewhere else you have you have, you have these hunting plots which you aren't going to maximize acreage on and you have another area that's wide open in the middle of a big valley that you know you know the deer are only going there at night but they're going to get their winter nutritional need there um, i see this all the time where people have beans planted in a place where the deer aren't going to go there during the day and season, but come February, they're out on that field eating. Uh, it might be at night, but you're accomplishing that goal. So back to your original question, I would rather have a plot be smaller and built right than have it be over, you know, maximizing the amount of planted acres. Um, the only thing that you would have to maybe take a second thought on that is if you're seeing that you, that food is not making it through the entire hunting season. And then you just need to reevaluate things, and maybe that could be evaluating your herd uh, and what you have uh, coming into it. Yeah, then we start thinking about <clears throat> we really need to, to limit the number of mouths, <laughs> you know what I mean, that are, that are yeah. coming into that property. That's, that's right. And that's a whole other thing, and it can be a good problem to have, especially if you've got buddies or kids around that uh, want to take a lot of does, then, man, that can, be, mm-hmm. that can provide some really good fun for the whole family and for your friends and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, so right let's, on. let's talk a little bit about then that nutrition piece. Maybe I have a property that is one of those really tough properties where I don't have a lot of opportunities for food. It's steep. There's just not a lot of open ground where it is open mm-hmm. ground. I, I can't get it. Maybe it's too wet. I can't get food in there. What are some of the ways that I can tackle that problem, uh, or, you know, address that issue on my property sure so some of these uh very you know topography rich areas we'll say that have a lot of slope and very little opportunity for food plots perhaps you you aren't going to get them a couple of things that come to mind for me and and tools in the toolbox that we use is for for starters making a browse plot so maybe you are opening up that canopy putting trees down and you're not trying to make a bedding area per se. You're just, you're trying to create a bunch of woody brows, um, you know, low to the ground uh, opportunity for that food. Again, the, the tonnage per acre, we go into all these stats of, of what you're accomplishing there and having that deer are going to use it. And, you know, some people do rotational cuttings. They'll have a uh, acre area that they clear cut to, to encourage that to happen. I, I, I encounter this um, a fair amount with lowland parcels where they're, they may be wet. You're not going to get the, uh, you know, I talk a lot about upland parcels in a lot of hill countries, what I designed, but 
like in central part of Wisconsin, we have a lot of these properties that are low. And if they have um, uh, rotational cuttings in their low ground of, of these trees and get this regrowth going, they're, they're going to have good browse that way. Uh, and that, that really helps. Another one too, where you talk about if very small area, sunlight's a problem, the soil's not great, is to simply do rye, you know, to do a winter rye plot and have that be uh, a staging plot. So think of it, if you have these really small areas, sometimes you have these properties that are very, you know, they're five times longer than they are wide, let's say. You want to you stagger these tiny plots in a lineal way, kind of like breadcrumbs through the property, where you have the ability to uh, develop a line of movement from A to B, and rye will grow just about anywhere, and uh, that's a good way to do it. Yeah, so you don't have to have the acre, three quarters of an acre, even half acre size food plots. You can go small yeah. and fit food in where you can fit food in. Yeah, one of my best plots is, I should measure it, it's, I think it's about 0.15 acres. It's very wow. small. Wow. And it is, I, what's great about it is the setup is perfect. Clean access, I can come hunt it every day of the week. Um, it has just the, it, it's ma- we've maintained the character of the cover. There's trees within the plot. There's trees around the plot, good edge habitat, right on a line of movement. We have a pinch point we've created with a bedding area adjacent to it that kicks deer right into it. So they just have to run right through it and they're comfortable. They're as comfortable there as they are in the cover. And that's the goal. Yeah. Very good. All right, Sam, next, next, uh, issue with my property. I'm a landowner. And this year I was seeing does everywhere. Got does all over the place. I've got does for days. And I saw only the occasional immature buck. I saw a couple of spikes, a couple of small basket racks, sixes and eights. That's obviously not what I'm going for. What's the problem? What, what's going on here and how do I fix it? Well, if you're, if you're constantly just all does, it sounds like you need to uh, do a little bit of herd control and, uh, you know, get behind the trigger a little bit. And like you said, they have all those fun hunts. When we first started with our property, our own property, it was kind of that way. We had does everywhere and we just kept shooting. And eventually to the point where we had as many or more bucks on cameras we did on, uh, as we did does. And I think that let the cameras tell you what's going on. You know, you have these uh, common travel routes, pinch points, let that, let that be your counter. Um, we're to the point now that it's pretty even bucks and does on camera um, which then leads to having some bigger bucks because you don't, you know, the bigger bucks aren't going to tolerate that kind of stress if it is just overridden with those. Now they'll be there, especially in and around uh, the times of the year with the rut. Um, it can be, can be good that way. So there's, there's upsides to having a lot of does, but for season long consistent success, having a lot of does in general uh, is, is something of a concern. Also gets back to some of your comments of food plots and, having season long support, especially if you're limited on the amount of acres and all that, that you're doing. So, um, start shooting, enjoy it, have fun. It's all part of it. You hear these success stories, these people that have some pretty big bucks. A lot of them started by shooting a lot of does. Yeah. And I think that what you just said there though, start shooting and have fun. Like that is part Mm -hmm. of the process and we can enjoy that part of the process as much as we can enjoy putting in these nice food plots or putting it, you know, we can, we can, it's all part of it. Embrace that for the fun that it can be. And 
um, you know, along the way to getting to where you want to be, man, you've had a really good time and you've fed a lot of people with a lot of venison. Yeah. Yeah. We had uh, over the years here with our property, many, many kids and friends and, you know, kids of friends and all this come and shoot does. And it's just been fantastic, you know, to hear them and see them have this enjoyment on it. Um, if you're missing out on that, uh, there's, there's a lot more to hunting, uh, than maybe you're focusing on. And, and I think that that's a, that's a good reminder for everyone, Josh. Yep. And I had a, uh, an acquaintance of mine. We, we've talked several times, uh, actually had him on one of my, on my other podcast and his goal for this year was to, sh- was to shoot 70 does off of his property. He needed to take out 70. And he was calling around wow. to everybody, even called me. It was like, can you please come shoot some does? We need, we need more tags on this property. We need more people to come yeah. fill more tags because they're just so overrun with deer. And in this specific area, I think uh, it's, it's South Carolina. And I think the, mm. the average number of deer is like between 160 and 200 deer per square mile, which is just wow. outrageous. I mean, just absolutely outrageous. Yeah. So they've got to do a lot to keep it in check. They have no winter kill. There are no other predators, hardly besides humans. So they've got to do a lot of work. Um, hmm. Last scenario. Sam, every time I go into the woods, I get busted. I'm hunting a travel route here, what I think is a travel route, and I get busted by deer behind me. I go into my food plots here. Deer come in from any and every direction. I'm getting busted. Uh, I can't seem to pin down how the deer use my property. It's so random. I don't even know where to start. What's the problem? How do I fix it? Well, it all starts with understanding where the deer are on your property. So a great time to do that is, is now, you know, getting out there and seeing, uh, seeing all these travel routes. One of the common things I'll tell people to do is flip the tracker on your uh, Onyx or GPS or whatever you use and, and go walk every single deer trail that you can make sense of that that's you know not just a single path and and see see what it looks like when you're done um it's specific to hunting setups you should know where the deer are coming from on that set and in that through design and planning and all these things and, and improvement you're forcing that to happen with corridors there is no question that how a deer is traveling parallel in front of you where they should be, um, you know, blocking your downwind side or having, uh, down, you know, intentionally down trees behind you and things like that to make deer go around you, or perhaps setting your set where you're on a pretty steep drop off behind you. And you just know if a deer's down there, they're, they're lost, right? You know, it's, it's, there's these things that happen. They, they, we need to look and control that. And that's what habitat work and, uh, doing these things for the, the strategy of hunting is what it, what everything that we, we try and do, uh, as far as getting busted coming and going, if you don't have good access to your location, maybe see how you can improve it. Maybe there's some screening you can do. Maybe you shouldn't have that set. I think that's a sober thing too, is to realize that, uh, I can't get here without screwing up my property. And one of the tests that I'll do on a plan is to say, you know, just how much of this property am I screwing up by accessing the stand? And in doing that enough, you get to the point in laying out a property where you just aren't doing that. You're not putting a stand in the central part of the property, let's say, if you have an outside-in approach. You're trying to stay more on the perimeter and be careful and, and not impact that. 
Um, I also think it's important to look beyond your property boundaries and say, obviously, deer, you know, if I got a 40 acre property, they aren't confined to this uh, exact acreage, you know, where we don't have a high fence here. So accept where deer are coming and going from your property and embrace that and use that in your plan and your strategy. You might have a stand that's 15 yards onto your property and you know that the there's a 50% chance that they're coming from the neighbor onto your land on that, you know, that down wire of that fence, that that's the spot they're going to cross. So all these things of looking at it and understanding how the deer are using it. If you're going in there and getting busted, you know, a lot of times too, I'll, I'll kind of take a, a note and say, well, if a deer was better in a spot that I didn't expect them to be, I'm going to go in there and eliminate that betting opportunity for them uh, for next season. You know, if there's a spot they like to bet right by my entry point, I'm going to go in there and just mess it up for them, put logs in there, down a tree there, you know, try and not make it even better for betting, but you get the point. You're trying to block them from having that uh, use of that spot. Um, a bench, for example, a little, little small bench, if you need to pass by that on the way to your stand, you might make sure that there's no opportunity for them to want to find a spot to lay down in there. Yeah, that's good. When it comes to accessing uh, a property and, and how much I'm screwing up, like, you know, outside in approach is, is going to be preferred, but a lot of properties, mm-hmm. just because of the way they've been treated in the past, everybody likes a nice big road going right down the middle, right? And, and mm-hmm. um, how, uh, what do you consider screwing up the property? Is it, is it too much to drive a vehicle through to a certain point? Or like, how do you, how do you gauge, I guess, the amount or the level to which you're messing things up? Well, part of that has to do with frequency and what they're used to. And, you know, everybody say, well, I can drive my tractor right through the middle of the property. Yeah, there might be some local truth to things like that. But, you know, how often are you hunting the property? If it's a, if it's a property that's untouched for, you know, all but three days of the season you're there, you might be able to get away with more because uh, the deer are more, it you know, has more time to be, uh, for the deer to reacclimate to your being gone and all that. Um, but, I would say in general, I, I want to be coming from the outside, but some properties don't set up that way. You know, you have more of a centrally located cabin in the property and you aren't moving the cabin and you just split the property in half and you go from inside out. You know, sometimes those type of properties, you might have a tree stand on a travel corridor that's, uh, you know, 20 yards off the back porch because that's where deer are going around and, and they, they might associate that area with humans and they're going to skirt it just far enough. And you utilize that to your advantage that you're not going then and marching out to the property boundary. You're going to stay close to that human area and the deer skirting around it. That's when you're going to catch them. Very good. Very good. Well, Sam, I've taken enough of your time. Where can folks find uh, more from you when it comes to your posts or more from you when it comes to, you know, all the educational stuff we're putting up on whitetailpartners.com? Yeah, well, you hit it. Uh, anything Whitetail Partners, just go uh, Google that. You'll find us uh, website, whitetailpartners.com. Uh, check out the Learning Center on there. Get that going here now and uh, be adding to that all the time. Social media, the same as at Whitetail Partners, uh, Instagram, Facebook. Come find us. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you, Josh. That's all for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you get your podcasts. 
While you're at it, if you could leave me a five-star review, I would very much appreciate that. You can also follow along with my outdoor adventures on Instagram at the Wisconsin Sportsman or at How to Hunt Deer. That's also the best way to get a hold of me. Suggest topics, guests, or questions that you'd like me to explore on the show. Big thanks to our partners, Tacticam, Huntworth, and Onyx. Please go support the brands that support this show. And if you're looking for more great outdoor content, check out the sportsmansempire.com where you'll find my other podcast, the How to Hunt Deer podcast, as well as a ton of other awesome outdoor podcasts. And until next time, make sure you make the time to get outside and enjoy the incredible natural resources that are ours as Wisconsin sportsmen.